Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Colour. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, I'm very pleased to say, is Jonathan Holmes, founder and CEO of Lux Deco, the luxury interiors platform. Raised in a large entrepreneurial family, Jonathan's focus on interiors developed while helping his mother source items for her design business. She's now Lux Deco's interiors director, by the way. A self-proclaimed ardent supporter of luxury, it was Jonathan's frustration with the uninspiring high-end interiors on the high street that drove him to create change. Combining his experience in and passion for digital technology and design, he sought to create a marketplace that would, as he says, transform a local, offline fragmented industry into a digitally connected ecosystem. Lux Deco launched in 2012, offering design advice, installation support, and an interior design studio service with expertise ranging from full-service residential and hospitality projects to product sourcing and bespoke furniture design. It's lovely to have you here your relationship with luxury, Jonathan. What's all that about then? Firstly, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, interesting. My relationship with luxury, I think, probably started from an influence from my parents. So my mother's always been an interior designer. As you mentioned in the intro, she she works for us now as our interiors director. So I've spent my life surrounded by really nice objects. From my home growing up, everything in my life has always been quite nice, quite luxury. I've been very privileged in that sense that I've been around some sort of fantastic things that can can inspire you to be into luxury. And I think that's carried on throughout my career. My whole early sort of childhood in terms of my schooling and then when I went to university, there's a design and sort of inspirational aesthetic that follows through that. I studied art, I studied design at university. So I think the aesthetics has always appealed to me and something that's obviously very important in what I do today. And I think really that's shaped a lot of decisions I've made in my career. Even when I was working previous to Lux Deco, working in sort of design space, helping other clients, it was always luxury clients that I went went for. That was always what appealed to me. And I think it's just something that's naturally been sort of embedded in me, which again comes from being quite privileged in, in my upbringing. So I think that's something that I've always adapted to and enjoyed being around. But luxury, you know, for me, for you, for you listening, everyone has their own version of it. I'm just interested in when you grew up, as you said, around aesthetically pleasing objects that were luxury in in the way that they were brought to life what is it what's that is there an emotional relationship you have which may sound strange to say with an object but what is it about luxury that you know what does it make you feel that's what i'm really interested in i want to ask you about where lux deco came from yeah i think that's very interesting because luxury is one of those words that can be completely overused and it is overused you'll see very low-end store selling something that says it's luxury it's actually in most cases completely the opposite And a lot of people also think it's just around price. And it's not just around price. It's not something that's just expensive. For me, I always look at things that are very high quality, things that are beautiful, like I said, aesthetic, generally well-made. They're sort of qualities that always stand out for me. And that's something that we've applied to to our range itself. It's not just about being an expensive item. It is the craftsmanship, really, that tells that story around luxury and and has products that actually have a story to tell themselves. So early days, right, when you're little, because when I I was little, my first memories of being very very small, was playing football with my dad, right? And we, it, was, it was kind of not a luxury. Yeah. It wasn't a very luxury experience, but it's very, very powerful in my mind, that memory going in the back garden, knocking the ball over the back about 58,000 times. 
For you, though, do you remember when you were first, as a child, connected to this thing called luxury? Do you remember the object? Can you describe it, if, if that's possible? I think it's hard to remember a specific object, but I definitely remember being in a very nice environment. And I think that was really where it came from. Soft like, carpet? Soft carpet, oh, like nice soft objects. Carpet. Yeah, very soft yeah, carpet. Very soft. Obviously, at the time, probably didn't really appreciate it as much as I do now looking back, but it, you know, the environment that we'd created in the home was always very nice to look at. In terms of memories around playing football and things, we didn't do any of that. Our football in our family was business. Like We still do that now. That's all we do. Christmas dinner will eventually lead into a business conversation. We don't do the sort of whole sport thing. So the memories of being at home and talking business will probably end up what shaped my career going forward and, and the decisions I've made. But yeah, I remember more the the sort of feeling of being in a nice environment, which again, I don't really feel connected to me until more recently than and looking back than it did at the time, but just felt like a some great environments and some nice objects. And you know, dad had a nice car and things like that. Some of those things that just I remember looking back now as being yeah. Um, very nice to have at the time and, and they've sort of stuck with me. And I like that feeling of being around those things. And Lux Deco, give me the, the, give me the quick headline. We're obviously going to talk a lot more. Tell me the inspiration for Lux Deco in 2012. Yeah, so interestingly, I was working at the time in the same office as my mother. So previous to that, the financial crisis had hit my mother's business quite hard. It hit my family business uh, on my father's side very hard. And my mother was trying to really look at how to I guess, reinvent her business. And we started sharing an office in sort of Essex and I was looking at what she was doing on a day-to-day or more overhearing what she was doing on a day-to-day part of her day working. And I was trying to develop my own business, which was building more digital clients. You know, I've been in the sort of business of building websites for people in some shape or form for a long time. And I was trying to do my business while watching hers. And I could just hear sort of conversations going on with customers that were around trying to find items, trying to find individual pieces they were looking for and how to find them and again something that didn't really completely click with me and at the time I was just paying attention to what was going on and and looking at the industry and thinking this is still very old school from from the sounds of it now I'd also been throughout my life taken to loads of trade shows generally as my mother's driver you know can you please take me to this trade show here there and I'd go and I'd, I'd see these products that were amazing and they was you know like I said beautiful high quality and then when I actually moved to to my own property and thought actually my house is quite unique it's got a very different it's not your sort of standard building it's got exposed brick etc I needed to find something that was just not off the shelf so I couldn't go to most of the local stores and find things that worked for my property so obviously naturally I kept having to say to my mum can you find this for me can you find this for me can you find and and that was really was a bit of a pain point for me and I was like this doesn't make sense why is it so difficult and that was really what got me to look and think, okay, there needs to be more of, more access to these products. And obviously the internet is a great thing to be able to give access to anything. So why is no one doing that? And then I sort of took a, a step back and thought, is there a business opportunity here? Is it something that we could develop? And I did two things. Firstly, I started researching the market and then realized, actually, this is a huge market, loads of potential, completely fragmented. Your luxury segment of home is like 30, 40 billion pounds market, which is bigger than watches, yet no one could name three or four brands that are in that space. So there was a there was a sort of marker there that was, okay, this is interesting, there's a gap there, but there's no one done it because it's not possible, and it's not practical, and that's generally what most people will say. Those first steps to building Lux Deco to say, okay, I'm going to find a way of trawling the world, surfacing them digitally and then selling them. Just tell me about those early those early few days and months in making that actually a reality. The first steps were really to actually see if there was any demand. Mm. 
So I hacked together, and when I say hacked, I've got some coding skills, but they're not good. I hacked together a cart and added it onto my mum's existing interior design website. And then I just started running some Google ads to see, will anyone ever check out for a piece of furniture online? High-end furniture. And we had a few good relationships with suppliers that obviously my mother had worked with in the past. And I just said, can we, can we test it? And they was very receptive and said, yeah, go ahead. So we tested it and started adding some products on and we built a cart, run a few ads. And then I kind of just left it for a while, for six months or so, while I did other bits and bobs and obviously was, was checking in and optimizing the ads, et cetera. And it just started to get a few sales and it was, it, was, it was ticking over. It was doing okay. So I was like, okay, this is quite bizarre. There's no real effort going into actually growing this, but people are checking out and buying stuff. So what were they, and what were they buying, Jonathan? Sorry, just cut across I think you. one what of the first of things thing? we ever sold was a dining table and chairs, which was, which was a shock because it was quite a high ticket item that we wasn't, you know, that was up there as a bit of a showstopper. We didn't think that would ever sell at the start. So I started to get some insight that, okay, this has actually got legs. Like, this could be a business. And from that point, I started to build an actual, like everyone does, the normal business plan and started mm. to go and speak to a few investors to see if they was interested, speaking to a few brands about it being interested. And basically, the, the initial sort of flat-out story was absolutely not. No one's ever going to buy your furniture on the internet. We don't want our products on the internet. It's not going to work. And I heard that repeatedly over and over and over again, which for me was like, great. This is a good idea because I want to disrupt this market and everyone is saying with the things I think they were going to say. My view was also, though, hold on, most of furniture is bought through distance selling anyway. Even if you go into a store and you see a sofa and you say, I would like it in a different colour, you don't walk out of it in a different colour that day. You're taking the punt that you've seen it and you, okay, you get to sit on it, it's slightly different, but you're still ordering it in a different colour that's probably come from some kind of catalogue or a salesperson showing you different fabric swatches. And loads of businesses have been built in history in furniture space from catalogues. So for me, it's like, okay, the distance selling thing works, mm. but everyone just doesn't really buy into the fact that it'll be the internet. And then obviously the comfort question comes up a lot and that's something you always have to look into. But there was just this whole view that it's just not going to work. On the comfort thing though, just out of interest, you know, you look at designer objects, especially um, chairs and sofas, and the truth is they're, they're beautiful pieces. They're literally objects of art. So, I mean, you know, we, we all talk about the comfort thing, but who knows whether, you know, you sit down on a sofa shop and you go, was that comfortable? Don't know. I mean, I guess you look back now and you go, crazy, of course people should have believed that this was going to work because in reality, you rarely think with your head when you're buying a designer piece of furniture. I mean, this is not a rational decision, is it? No, to spend 2,000 quid on, a, on four legs and a, and a property. Of course, I, by the way, I love luxury. I'm not being pejorative at all about the world of luxury, but there is a different way of looking at a chair which is from a famous design house and, and all that. But you ignored them, which is interesting. At what point did those people that didn't believe you, what point did they get on and start saying, you know what, I am behind this? Has that been more recently? And if so, how recently? It, it was interesting in terms of the, the, the first step, obviously, was you know, understanding that this is going to take quite a bit of capital to get this business live. That was, that was a, an obvious view and every business shape you have on here probably has the same discussion. They need to scale the business and they need some capital to do so. So I knew that I had to raise money somehow and convince some investors. And it was it was a bit of a, a twist of fate that actually secured the first part of investment. I was actually helping a business with their digital, not far from here actually, in Golden Square. And I was working with those at the time and just had a few random sort of water cooler conversations that were like, I'm helping you at the moment, but I'm going to do my own business. And the investor is someone you've actually had on the show, uh, Robin Toombs from, from Yachty. Oh, yeah. um, he, he was the guy I was working with and I was discussing with him the potential and he wanted me to stay there and do some work on his, his projects. And I said, I'm, I'd love to, but I've got to leave. I'm doing my own thing. 
And we had a few conversations about what that was, and I was explaining Lux Deco, and he liked the idea. And then, yeah, we just that was just a conversation, but a few sort of random things happened. I went to the doctors one day, and he was there, and then we discussed it a bit more. And then one day I'd had an investor meeting that went really badly and got on the train, and I sat next to him, and he said, what, where have you been today? And I said, investor meeting. And we had a conversation about investing. And these conversations just started to develop, and then he ended up writing the first cheque. And that was really what got the business going, which was just a, a strange twist of fate that actually worked in a great way. He's been my main investor right the way through with his partner, Noel Hayden. They're, they're the biggest investors we have in the business. And we are in a unique position where we've raised significant capital from just angels. We've had no VC funding. It's all been from angel investors. And that's been quite unique that they have backed it all the way through. So it, it, the business could never have, have been formed without that investment. It needs to come from there. I think there was just, uh, I think when I speak to him now and discuss it with him, we've got a good relationship. It was the sort of the passion and the drive for it, which he invested in me ultimately. And I think that's the case with a lot of startups. Mm. Uh, he said, look, I think you're going to do something good with it. So I'll back it. And that's really how it started. But then from there on, the real business had, had to come along. It was actually convincing the brands and, and employees, et cetera. That was really where the, the big challenge was. And I think most people look at fundraising as sort of the big milestones. But in reality, that's part of the course. But... Yeah, Actually, it's building the business that's the challenge. The real substance of the business. You're going to find out much more about that from my business shaper later here on Jazz Shapers. That's Jonathan Holmes. He'll be back in a couple of minutes to talk about Lux Deco and beyond the serendipitous nature of bumping into Robin Toombs about 18 times. Right now, though, it's time to hear a taster from the Mishcon Innovation Series, and they can be found on all of the major podcast platforms. The fabulous Natasha Knight invites business founders to share their industry insights and practical advice for those of you thinking about getting into an industry and starting your very own thing like Jonathan. In this clip, focused on retail, we hear from Tamar Atagechi, founder and CEO of Papier, an online stationery brand. The Mishcon Innovation Series. Insights from founders for your future business. In association with Jazz Shapers, with Mishcon Derea. In a way, the, the biggest learning curve is around learning about yourself as a chief executive. I think for me, at least, this is my first time both as a founder and as, a, as the chief executive of a company. And so you've got no one really to tell you what you're good at, what you're not good at where your strengths and weaknesses are, like you would if you were in any other role reporting into someone. So the biggest learning curve really is about learning about you, what you're good at, what you need to work on, and what you need to hire in order to compensate for the different areas that you're not as strong on. And I think that realisation that actually the path to growing a really successful business is actually about surrounding yourself with people that are better than you is, a, is an important realisation, I think, for any founder. The Mishcon Innovation Series in association with Jazz Shapers with Mishcon Derea. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM in partnership with Mishcon Derea. It's business, but it's personal. All our former business shapers await you on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And you can, of course, hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. My guest there is Jonathan Holmes, founder and CEO of Lux Deco, the luxury interiors platform. The last few years, you've grown. The naysayers were proved wrong. And here we are in a world where selling a £2,000 or £3,000 sofa and a £400 beautiful chair, or actually more like £1,300 by the looks of things, as I last peeped on your website, it's all very normal. So plain sailing, right, John? I mean, you've, you've, you've cracked it. Nothing else to do now. I'd love it if that was the case, but uh, sadly, sadly not. I think there's been some huge shift in 
the whole perception of digital, and obviously that was primarily driven by COVID, where people did start to shop online. And I think the, the conversations that we used to have with brands when we first started to say, you know, you should be online, has now switched to please can we get on your platform? And there's been a big shift in that, which has been great. And that's been also mirrored by the fact that you know so many more people were investing in their home and trying to make their homes more beautiful. And, and that obviously drove us to really increase our growth in the year that everyone was stuck inside. Now, obviously... 119% up. Yes, exactly. According, so, according to my statistics. Exactly. So, so some big growth there. And, and actually, interestingly, in 2021, we still grew again, where a lot of people hit a peak and then sort of dropped back down again. We just carried on to carried on growing. So what's driving great. the growth, Jonathan? What do you think? I if think you had the, to the, nail it in one I mean, thing. Ultimately, one of the best things about this business is that the there is a rising tide in terms of e-commerce adoption in our space. You know, We've always been excited by the fact that home is really four or five years, maybe more behind where fashion is in terms of digital adoption. So we know we've got that you know, wave to ride, which is great. But ultimately, it's probably investments just into our into our range, into our customer experience, and actually making the shopping experience as effortless as possible. And that's what we what we try to do. That's what we do every day. And there's still a long way to go to make that happen. Let me just ask you very quickly on the the aesthetic piece. We started with your relationship with luxury. How hands on are you in in curating what sits on your website, or is that now a delegated task? Is that your mum? No, it's not. Um, I my mum actually did it quite a lot of it in the early stages. I still keep a good eye on it, but we have a team that works on that now. And they're looking at products uh, from brands, new ones, new artisans or existing brands from around the world. So they're on that full time. And do you get excited still when you see a gorgeous piece or are you truthfully more interested in making the mechanics of the thing work, the application of data science I've read about? Which bit for you is the buzziest, truthfully? I still love seeing the products and I still will go and review what we're looking at and I'll still make some key decisions if I think something should be built and something not. But I do love the mechanics of the business. I think the... The, the growth is the thing that excites me the most, the growth and how we can take it to a bigger market, how we can simplify that customer experience. The other things that excite me because there's so much left to do. You know, home is, a, is an industry where no one shouts about how great the experience was. No one goes shopping in a, in a furniture store, comes back and says, that was the best day of my life. It's, it's a bad experience generally. And the, the fact that we believe technology can change that is what drives me every day. And there's a lot to do. And I think the, the downside to the scale we got in, in the COVID period was that actually the supply chain, as with every business at the moment, wasn't matching up to the, to the demand. So trying to get those two to level up is actually probably where a lot of the focus is at the moment. Yeah, ultimately, we've got to move expensive products that are prone to damage from all over the globe seamlessly. And that is a big challenge on its own, just operationally, to then make sure a customer receives it and is happy. So... There's so much to look at that you mm. can't not be excited by that part. But at the same time, I'll still you know, read customer feedback. I'll still go look at all the, the products we've got on the site. I'll still put my nose into places where I probably shouldn't and annoy my team because I still like a lot of the other aspects as well. I, I generally do keep an eye on most aspects of the business because I'm passionate about them. The team, you've built a team of around 80 people. That's not a small number anymore. I'm sure you know everybody by name and the names of their... Families, if they have them, and their their dogs, and most people seem to have dogs now post COVID. What would they say about you when you're not in the room? Oh, interesting question. Probably something I can't say on air, but um, I think overall, I think they'd probably say that I'm very clear in trying to articulate where we're going in in the vision, or at least in the future. Maybe not so much the short term goals, but definitely the long term of where I want this business to go. And probably to follow along with that, it would be that I'm quite relentless. You know, if if there's something I want to get fixed, I'll keep on and on and on. And I 
definitely think they'll say resilient because this business, as with any business, has had a lot of ups and downs. There's been times where it's been you know, hard and, and challenging both uh, for myself, for the team, for anyone around, you know, my family, et cetera. But it's never really put me off. And mm. I think there's, and I've, I've learned that from, from, you know, my family and, and how being around a lot of entrepreneurs in my life, that that is something that is part of being an entrepreneur. You have to be able to, you know, take no's when people say you won't sell online, this business won't work. You have to be able to look at problems and try and navigate them. And I think that's really where, it's a tolerance to stress and a skill set that you know, it's not always the best one to talk about because you don't want to go through those scenarios, no, but, but it's, it's something it's, that's very important. And it's what you said at the beginning, which is like, you know, you were just around conversations which were about business, yeah. um, as was I actually, because both my parents were, were entrepreneurs. And it does, you're right, you're just, you're just imbued in it. It's just part of what you do. Do you still talk to family a lot about the business? And, it, and if so, is it just to reassure you or are there sometimes really difficult problems that you want to mull over with someone that you know you can trust? I think I talk to my family, especially my dad in particular, about business every time we talk. You know, we've, we sat on holiday once and said, let's just not talk about business for a few hours because it's all we ever talk about and all we've ever talked about. And in two minutes, we were just sort of staring at each other blankly to say, all right, we don't really have anything else to talk about, so let's just carry on talking about business. That's just what we do. So I think it works in two ways. He'll talk to me about problems he's got. I'll talk about problems I've got. And just different perspectives, as with, with any conversation you have with people, can sometimes make you think of something different. And, and I think listening to other people's ideas is something that helps you be more successful and helps you navigate these problems, you know, especially as a single founder. You know, you don't have someone to bounce off every day. I've got yeah. a great team around me that I can, but there's always some things where you might just want a different opinion or someone who looks at it in a very different way. And obviously, you know, my dad's a lot older than I am. He looks at business in a very different way to what I do. And actually, sometimes the, the middle is actually a really good solution. So, yes, we talk about it all the time. Uh, and now I've got a younger brother. He's 23. He's, he's joined in the conversation as well. So we're all just constantly talking about it, which sounds quite boring, but... Uh, we enjoy no. it. <laughs> no, what a noise in the Holmes household, I tell exactly. you. Final chat coming up with Jonathan Holmes in my business shape today. And there's something special from Ray Charles as well, just around the corner. So don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Jonathan Holmes, my business shaper. Just for a few more minutes, he's the founder of Lux Deco, if you haven't picked that up already. We were talking about family and, and, and what happens when you talk about business, and indeed that's what you, you, as you said, comfortably you all talk about. Doesn't it get emotional, Jonathan? I mean, you know, family businesses are very, and they're very common, and I meet lots of people who are in business with their family or have family in the background. And it strikes me that obviously there's a, they've got your back thing because you know it's family and then they're there for you. But there's another thing about just reverting to type. You're the kid, he's the dad, or he, she's the mum, there's a younger brother. Do you avoid the emotion, or is there lots of emotion? We're quite emotional people, so it's quite hard to avoid it. Um, sometimes those conversations turn into fireworks. and I think, that's, I think a lot of entrepreneurs will have a lot of passion, and they'll defend their ideas. I think no one likes criticism. You have to take ideas from that criticism, but no one really actually loves hearing, no matter how much they say they like hearing criticism, no one really does. So yes, there's absolutely some emotional parts in there. There is always that fact that, you know, dad will always say, you're my son, I'm right. And that, that leads to a lot of tension. And when I worked the other side, when I actually did spend a few years of my career working for my dad's business, I found that extremely difficult and I couldn't do that. And that was, that was too hard. So we try and still, we have a lot of conversations, but at a distance. 
Having my mother working in the business is very different. We're in separate teams effectively anyway. She works in the interior design studio. I work much more with the sort of website side of the business. So I don't have that same conversation with her. Our conversations will be all about what products there are in the industry more than actual hard business conversations. So I do think that there is, it's hard to avoid any emotional conversation when you're talking in family and business. But the fact that I will either be advising on his business and he's advising on mine does sort of also mean that there's no line of responsibility or line of hierarchy anywhere and you can talk as peers and that makes it a lot easier. But it sounds also like, just looking at the way you talked about that, there's the fireworks isn't necessarily bad. You kind of like it. You like a bit of a, I imagine you like <laughs> a safe fight rather than an unsafe fight. And when you're with family, you can have a safe fight. Yeah, for sure. And I actually say to my, my leadership team quite a lot, like we don't argue enough. And mm. I know that sounds quite odd, but sometimes those those conversations, you do end up thrashing things out, getting to the, the place you need to be. And yeah, I do. I mean, I actually, sometimes when the business is in its most strained position is when I'm most excited. And yeah, that's when I'll go, okay, I'll be up at four in the morning, I'll be at the office. They're the bits I do enjoy. Do you want them to say no to you more, Jonathan? Is that what you're saying here on Jazz Shapers? Are they going to take this back and go, good, I can argue more with him. But, but joking aside, is that is that true? Do you want more more challenge? Look, I think ch- any challenge is good. And, and most of the decisions that get made in the business aren't necessarily me saying that's what you're doing. The, the team are there to make the decisions. I hire people that are meant to be smarter than me in certain areas. That's that's how I like to build the business. And I think that they should be able to come and say that this is wrong. As long as they're aligned with the vision and where we want the business to go, I'm definitely not a micromanager. I like to say to the team... That's where we're going, and it's up to you how you get there. You can make your own call. I want you to be an entrepreneur. It's one of our core values. Be an entrepreneur. Figure it out. And that means you've also got to have that resilience. You've also got to have that need to be able to argue your point. You've also got to fight for things, and that's what I'd like my team to be. So absolutely, you know, I love to be challenged. It's what really pushes me forward. It's been great talking to you. Um, you. Your team are now going to feel even more empowered to, <laughs> to, to go challenge you. Thank you so much for being with me today. Just before I let you disappear, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? My song choice is Summer in the City by Quincy Jones. Big Quincy Jones fan, sadly, predominantly because I absolutely was obsessed with the uh, Michael Jackson Thriller album when I was a kid. I used to dress up in some questionable outfits uh, that should never ever be seen and I really hope I've got no pictures of them circulating anywhere in the world. Um, so that was why I really sort of looked at that, that artist. But that song, we're based in the city of London. Summer in the city of London is, is a good place to be place that a lot of people enjoy so it just resonated with me quincy jones with summer in the city the song choice of my business shaper jonathan holmes he talks about fireworks in a family-run business when you've got people in the family that are also in the business there are going to be fireworks but that isn't necessarily a negative thing at all he talks about wanting to be challenged and how important that is to have people around you as we've said before that do challenge you and that have got ideas and that are there because they are smarter than you in certain ways and he talks about wanting everyone in his business to be an entrepreneur how often have we heard that critical though if you're building something you need everybody to behave as if it's their money and it's their business great stuff that's it from me and jazz shapers have a lovely weekend jazz shapers on jazz fm in partnership with mish it's business but it's personal We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers.